Good evening and welcome to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin Matt Costa, science advisor Matt Moniz, psychic medium Stephanie Burke, and hanging with us in the studio tonight, we have Aaron Kadju. We'll get into that coming up in just a bit, but we have a full show for you tonight, even though we are streaming on YouTube only, Spooky South Coast's Spooky TV on YouTube. Uh, the Red Sox are still going on on the radio, but that's all right, because we can still bring you paranormal talk as we do each and every saturday night and we are going to have a hell of a show for you tonight action packed lots of stuff going on lots of things to talk about the main topic tonight will be the new bedford highway murders and we'll be joined uh, as well as having aaron here we'll be joined by maureen boyle as well coming up a little bit later on but before we get into that we've got a bunch of stuff to cover and uh ken just hung up because he was hearing the red Sox while he was on hold so let me let him know that that's uh what what the case is, but I want to say thank you to everybody out there who joined in with the show, and uh, oh, hold on, I can't type and talk at the same time, so uh, I'm terrible at this, so uh, we will uh, cover a lot of ground tonight, I want to say hi to everybody on what used to be Belgab is now Elgab. E-L-L-G-A-B, Elgab.com. So you can check out everything that you are using from Elgab. That's, that's my fault. And uh, let me put that back into program, take it into there. Now people can hear that on the radio. And uh, we will we will continue to welcome those folks uh, throughout the course of the show. But, okay, I think I've got everything settled here. We're doing this stuff on the fly here. No, I don't need your mic up. Okay, fine. You don't have to talk. All right, I'll go home then. She's like, I just need my mic up so I can yell at you. Well, you're talking to yourself and saying you can't talk when you type, but we're sitting right here waiting to talk to you. <laughs> I didn't. Nobody was. Nobody seemed to be jumping to say anything. Well, because I knew my mic was down. But one person who is jumping to say something is our first guest this evening, Ken DaCosta of Rise Up Paranormal. And and Ken, can you hear us? Okay. Oh, let me put that up. And then maybe you can hear us. Ken, can you hear us? Okay. Ken? All right. Well, he should be able to hear us. I don't know why he can't. Maybe he can. We just can't hear him. <laughs> uh, I've I'm, I'm got everything set up correctly. Well, that's all, about all you can do. Ken, are you there, Ken? Nope. See? I think I have everything right, Matt. Oh, go ahead. Here, tell me. Tell me. Audition? Audition? It's an audition. Oh, you want me on audition? You can hear something in the background. Ken, can you hear me now? Yeah, nope, that's not it. This is an audition. Ken, can you hear me? That should be the way that it should be set up. No, that puts it the other way. Ken, can you hear me? Nope, I think it's his phone. I hear, so I hear something in the background. Yeah, we can hear you. Well, this is starting off very well. Do you guys want to just cancel the show? No, no. No. Like, we already came here, so we might as Yo. well. Hello, Ken, can you hear us? Ken, can you hear me now? No. How about now, Ken? I got you. There we go. That's we weren't in this pot. 
That's what it is. Mental note. Phone must be on for phone to work. <laughs> oh, that was uh, tough. I thought we were going to do it telepathically tonight. We were trying, but uh, the Red Sox are getting in the way. They're blocking all of our all of our mind bullets. That's right. I'm watching them as we speak. Yeah, thanks for not getting over in time for us to be on the radio, but that's all right. We can still do things over YouTube, and uh, we have uh, just a few moments here with you tonight, Ken, but we wanted to let everybody know about what's coming up next weekend with Ocean State Paracon. How many years now is this? This is the seventh year. And uh, out of all those years, uh, it just seems to be getting bigger and better each year. Yeah, we had uh, really humble beginnings. Uh, in a basement of a church in Woonsocket, and I don't think we saw that it would grow to the extent that it has, but it's been very gratifying, and um, we've been able to do, you know, our small part to uh, help people in the community, and uh, in great part, that's thanks to um, the people who attend every year and our guests who come here of their own dime and give their time to uh, support these great causes. Sorry, I'm just yelling at Sudan name in the chat room because anytime there's a problem, he's the first one to point it out. Mm-hmm. So thanks. We weren't aware that you couldn't hear Ken. So uh, anyway, uh, not to uh, dampen the spirit of Ocean State Paracon, but uh, I am getting frustrated with the technology tonight. Next week is going to be the complete opposite of that, Ken, because it's so relaxed and calm at Ocean State Paracon, even though there's tons of stuff going on, tons of discussions to see, tons of people to talk to, tables and vendors to visit, you are able to maintain, I mean, from from the outside, I can tell you, it looks like everything is nice and calm and peaceful. I know it's not like that for you and your team as you're running around trying to make everything look so effortless, but uh, it's. I, I think being beside the river helps. Yeah, I think it's a calming effect, if nothing else. To be honest with you, uh, the day of the event is actually the easiest. It's uh, If you have the hay in the barn at that point and you've got your preparations done, then uh, you open up the gates, and uh, it's just great to see people come in and have a good time. And one of the benefits, too, for those who have never been before, uh, this is in the small village of Harrisville, Rhode Island. It's a it's a very small, tight-knit community. It's a great place. Uh, you're spending a relaxed weekend uh, kind of in a, a country setting. But uh, also, all of the lectures happen in the nice air-conditioned assembly theater. So you'll be outside walking around, meeting everybody, and getting that nice river breeze. But then if you get a little too heated up, you just get to go sit down in this nice theater and hear those speakers speak. Yeah, that's a place where you see me start to decompress a little bit uh, over the course of the day. But uh, if the town of Harrisville sounds familiar to anybody, uh, it should. Uh, the Conjuring. And once again, Andrea Perron, who wrote the book House of Darkness, House of Light, that the movie was based on. She will be uh, returning to her hometown. So it's always great to welcome her back. And uh, this is among other tremendous speakers and guests that we have, among those Mr. Tim Weisberg, who's going to do a presentation for us. And um, there's food, there's fun, there's vendors, crafts, authors, artists, a little bit of everything for everyone. 
And uh, if you go and you're checking it out, uh, again, it's an entire weekend's full of uh, events. It'll kick off at noon on Saturday with a gallery reading from Tiffany Rice, then Carl and Keith Johnson speaking together at 1.15. Uh, I'll be speaking at 2.30. I'll be talking about ancient ghosts, early civilizations in the afterlife. Dustin Parry at 3.45, Rosalind Bound at 5. That's just the Saturday lineup alone. And then on Sunday, you have Dave Giuliano, Mike Rexucker, Bill Brock, Andrea Perrin, and Jack Kenna closing things out. And, uh, and as you mentioned to, uh, to all the speakers, the lectures are going to end on Sunday, but there will still be some time left in the event. So it's not like people have to rush right out during the last speaker either. No, we uh, decided to go to school on what we've done over the last few years. And uh, give enough time in between speakers for people to uh, traverse the vendor area and visit with everybody and still have enough time to make a getaway on Sunday. And uh, people uh, sometimes come from longer distances, so we want to allow them time to get home in the daylight and have a nice safe trip home. And, uh, and also, I highly recommend, uh, well, I don't want to give away the secret of... Uh where I'm going to eat on Sunday afterwards, but, you know, some of the cool people that are there on Sunday, I'll let you know, and you can come with me. Yeah, That's because I introduced you. That place was pretty fantastic. Lectures are still important to me, and we try to bring in a lot of different voices every year, a lot of different perspectives, so you'll hear everything from demonology to vampires to Sasquatch to UFOs to... Um, more of the metaphysical realm, so um, it's pretty diverse amount of speakers, so I think it's uh, something that everybody is going to take away a little bit something, regardless of what your interests are. And you'll also, uh, by the way, get to see Joe Chen will be there as well. Uh, Shannon Sylvia will be there. So even though you know I didn't mention them during the speaker schedule, they'll be there uh, hanging around. And of course, Chris, uh, and Christopher Rondino will be there as well. But don't forget the the MC, the host with the most, uh, Jiggy will be there as well. Our, our good friend Jiggy will be the master of ceremonies for the second straight year. He did a great job last year, and and uh, and I'm, I look forward to having some more fun with him this year. Yeah, he is, uh, he's a blast. And um, just to have him there is uh, kind of lights everybody up because, uh, you know, the way Jiggy is, he's a funny guy, and we like that kind of, that kind of thing added to the event. So, uh, you know, we want to make it as much fun as possible along with uh, doing some good in the community. And so while we're doing a little bit to give back, we'll have some fun. And uh, if you want to get tickets, you can go to uh, RiseUpParanormal.com. It's $12 per day, $20 for the weekend. Kids under 12, just $5. And it's it's really worth coming and spending the day. I, I recommend the weekend pass because when you come on Saturday, you're going to want to come back on Sunday. I haven't checked the weather report yet, but, uh, you know, it's almost always nice, beautiful day sitting by the river. And, you know, you can have a picnic. There's are the food trucks coming back. Food trucks will be there. Nice. Um, that's always a big draw. That's the only reason I even agree to go. <laughs> hydrate because early indications are it's going to be warm and sunny. I mean, I like going and helping out with charity and everything, but I also like the food trucks. So oh, food trucks are excellent. We've got Rocket Street Food, which is probably one of the premier food trucks in the state of Rhode Island. Elwood's dogs will be back, and uh, the rumor is they're going to be doing some frozen drinks this year. Nice. 
Well, looking forward to it. Uh, again, it's happening July 14th and 15th, uh, 11 a.m. to 6 p.m. Uh, outside the Assembly Theater in Harrisville, Rhode Island. It's really easy to get to. It's a nice ride if you're coming from around the South Coast area. It's uh, It only takes you about an hour to get there, and, and you have a nice, leisurely, relaxing ride. You get to go some back roads and see some of the, the parts of Rhode Island that we normally don't see when we're traveling around the highways and going to different places. You get to see... A real quaint New England village. So yeah, I think it adds to the whole ambiance of the place. Just that relaxed atmosphere on the side of the lake with a beautiful waterfall, um, nice sunny weather, and as you say, most importantly, an air-conditioned theater. So don't let the heat scare you away. No, absolutely not. So uh, we look forward to seeing you uh, next weekend, Ken. We'll be there. All right. Have a have a great night and uh, have a great week. And I know it's you know it's the the stressful week for you, but it's uh, it's all worth it when you get to uh, do good for for charities that deserve it. It's all worth it in the end. So thank you to you and your team for for putting this together year after year. Well, the same back to you. Thank you for being there again for us, Tim. Take care and thank you. All right. See you next week. You bet. That is Ken DaCosta from Rise Up Paranormal. Again, riseupparanormal.com. If you want to get yourself the uh, the tickets for the weekend, $20 for the weekend, $12 per day, but just get the weekend pass because you're going to want to go back. And uh, we will see you there. Well, I'll, I'll be there, and I'll be sitting at my table not selling anything. And uh, but I Too bad I, I couldn't keep you company. Might sell, maybe I should sell waters if it's going to be hot. You and could humid. sell waters. It was 100 degrees last year. Yeah, maybe uh, Maybe that's a good idea. Maybe I'll come meet you at the restaurant afterward. The uh, I don't want to give away the restaurant. I wasn't, on the air I wasn't because but maybe I'll come meet you. I don't, I don't, the only, I mean, as much as I want to promote the restaurant and get everybody to go to this awesome haunted restaurant with fantastic food, mm-hmm. I also don't want to have to wait in line when I get there, which is the whole thing. Right. Well, it was packed last year. We just sat in the bar. Right. So it but worked out. As long as, uh, as long as I can get all the bread that I want and the soup and all that stuff, I'll be happy. Don't talk about it. I don't want to give away too much. All right. Well, uh, we are supposed to be joined now by Danny Roberge, the man behind Big Beard Studios. Uh, I know that he's hard at work, though, trying to roll out this new version of EchoVox. Uh, but we did tell him that, uh, you know, until 1030, we had some time for him to come on and talk about it. So uh, hopefully he can join us for a few moments. If we do get him on, he can tell us a little bit about what he's planning with EchoVox Touch, which is the new version of EchoVox that is coming out. I'm very excited for this. Uh, there is a pre-sale going on right now. And I will give away the information about that because I don't mind letting people know about a product that I believe in. If you go to selfie.com, S-E-L-L-F-Y.com, search EchoVox, you can get involved in the pre-sale tonight. And if you get involved in the pre-sale tonight, you get it for the special price of nine ninety-five. So you pay for it now, and it's a secure site. Uh, you can pay with your PayPal, pay with your credit card. It will reserve your spot so that before it's released to the public, Echo Vox Touch, you will get it first and for cheaper. I'm assuming that that's probably at least half price uh, based on the price of the app normally. So if you go to S-E-L-L-F-Y, selfie.com, and look for Echo Vox, you can pre-order Echo Vox Touch, which I know the issue that he was working on earlier because if you're familiar with Echo Vox and the way that it runs... This involves you actually touching the screen, which allows you to kind of become like 
an antenna for it a little bit, like a, you know, pulling in some of that energy. Has anybody, has anybody checked it against, you know, Android versus? IPhone? It's it's Android only right now. Okay, it's the iPhone stuff's a little bit harder to uh, to nail down. But he's he's trying to roll out the Android version tonight. And when I talked to him earlier, he said the biggest issue that he's having, and I don't think he'll mind me saying this, is he's trying to make it so that you can put multiple fingers on the screen at one time. So he's probably trying to crack that code and get that ready so that we can have Echovox Touch roll out ASAP. But I would recommend getting involved in that pre-sale because you can save some money and you can get it ahead of time. And then you can tell all your friends about how awesome it is. And if you've ever been on an investigation with me, you know that I always use Echovox. I know, Stephanie, you've used it in a lot of uh, your investigations as well. I have. It's, I just don't have Android, so I can't download it myself. Well, you can you can get regular Echovox on okay, iPhone. Good. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, I mean, it's, it's not as... I'm the medium, not the ghost hunter all the time. So. It's actually, uh, I believe it's a little cheaper for, for iPhone. I'll have to look into it, but um, I'm a big fan of using it, especially with um, the piece of equipment that Christy has, which I have no idea what it's called. You know what I'm talking about, her, the little speaker? Her echo yeah. speaker there. Yeah, it's awesome. We actually use that at Short Mountain Distillery down in uh, Woodbury, Tennessee. And um, Porter and I were standing there asking questions with a group of uh, people while Christy was across the field um, waiting for answers. And I can tell you I get probably the most accurate answers that I've ever received on any type of ghost box um, piece of equipment ever um, with Echo Box. And I know we used it at the Mount Washington Hotel in the Princess Room while doing the Estes method, and that turned out really weird too. And I used it uh, in Middleborough a couple weekends ago, and I wasn't there for that. We had we were in the basement, and we were trying some of the the Estes method in the basement of the town hall. Some cool stuff there. Uh, we let it run while we were in the uh, you know the Underground Railroad portion mm-hmm. of the Oliver House. Got some very interesting stuff there. So it's it's certainly. Really, the only piece of equipment that I use. I know on it an has investigation been for years. Now. Like I, 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 I hand out my K two meters. I hand out my Mel meters. I hand out all the other stuff for other people to use, and uh, and basically, I just walk around with Echo Vox, mm-hmm. and I'm trying to train more and more people so that they know how to use it. And every time, it without fail, you know, people will see it in action, and then I see them go on their phones immediately and download it, and then go off on their own, and uh, it's it's. It's a great tool. It's a great way to communicate, and it's not like you are you're randomly picking up radio waves and you know trying to infer from what you're hearing right. on the radio. It's not like you're doing an investigation in Boston and saying where are we, and then the radio says Boston, right? Because the radio is going to keep saying Boston because you're in Boston, and uh, so you have a little bit more of a, a little bit more impact when you get not only words but complete sentences. Right coming out of bits of phonetic speech. So, And uh, anybody that has never seen it in action, just a few weeks ago we used it right here on the show. We tried the SDs method uh, right here on the show, and it was weird. We didn't really get anything overtly strong, but we had a few hits, and you can check that out on our YouTube page. And uh, we are going to be... Getting into the discussion in just a few moments, uh, Maureen Boyle is going to call in as well. Aaron Cadju is here with us. Aaron, I know you're not a paranormal guy. You're not a, a big believer in a lot of the different uh, types of gadgets that we run around with. But uh, if 
you know, if you heard something come out with complete sentences when it's only bits of phonetic speech, I mean, that's got to be kind of impressive to a skeptic, right? Yeah, I would say so, yeah. Uh, my issue with, with voices from the other side has always been, in my limited experience, and it's very limited, it's always something like you hear one or two words and it's, you know, kill the children or something really cryptic like that. And it's right. like, if, if why, you know, terrible. why can't you just say like, you know, hello, I'm looking to talk to a ghost and why doesn't the ghost just say, hey, I'm Bob Jones. I used to be a farmer here and I cr- was crushed by my tractor back in 19... 19- it's never like, it's never like that. Or why does it even have to be something like that? Why can't right. it be like, I lived here and then I died and now oh, I don't whatever. Yeah. Yeah. But it's never, in my experience, it's never just a direct answer to the question. It's always like some sort of like coded like cryptic thing that you have to decipher like if they could communicate from the other side why not just be up front and just talk in a conversational manner like we're doing here in the station and what what i like about it too is a, a lot of those conversations that i have with it are just that conversational you know it's not direct like did you die how did you die oh i hate that it's a lot of uh just back and forth uh, i love to play games using it where i will you know i will say to the echo vox i'm going to count to 10 but skip a number tell me what number i skipped and I'll count to ten, and I'll skip like six or seven, and then I'll say, you know, tell me what number I skipped, and it'll come back right away. Six. Well, that's yeah, that's a little more. I mean, I'd have or, to see it firsthand, you know, because I'm such a wet blanket skeptic. My favorite is sometimes I'll, <laughs> it's I'll so start. True, sometimes I'll start <laughs> counting, and I'll be like one, two, three, four, and the echo box will take over five, six, seven. So when that kind of stuff happens, that's that's pretty cool. So echo box touch is dropping. Very soon, so make sure that you uh, you go to selfie.com, S-E-L-L-F-Y.com, search Echovox Touch, and you'll be able to get it before anybody else does. We'll be using it next weekend in Winchenden, and we'll use it at the end of the month in Wareham, and hopefully I'll, I'll probably have Echovox Touch by then, too. So, well, I want to see how it works compared to regular Echovox. So won't other people. I mean, uh, especially uh, there's, there's a couple, I don't want to... You know, say their names on the radio right now because mm-hmm. I don't have their permission to uh, to out them. But uh, they came on an investigation, saw Echovox in action, immediately downloaded it. Yep. And now they use it every single time that they come out to something. So I always know that even if I don't have my phone on me or my tablet with me, I say, you know, do you have Echovox? Oh, of course. And it's uh, it's certainly one of those things that if you are. If you question the equipment that people use, you question when they start talking to blinking lights and staticky radios, this might be a little bit more your speed, a little bit more something that can prove something to you. Hey, before we get going with the actual discussion tonight, I want to let everybody know about Parabox Monthly. They have silk-screened, soft-style T-shirts that are super comfortable, and also they have a puzzle built in. And I've been saying for weeks that, you know, I wonder how soft these t-shirts are. Well, let me tell you, they are very soft. They are fantastically soft. And, uh, and this is like, you know, like when you go out and you buy those pajamas Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, you get like the flannel pants, but they come with the t-shirt. That's always like that nice soft t-shirt that you can sleep in. That's what this feels like. I could totally sleep in this t-shirt. Uh, but I'm not going to because, it will keep me up all night trying to figure out the puzzle that's built into it. And if you can see this one. I was looking at that. I can. I was wondering. I'm like, well, how pro- did you get a St. Augustine t-shirt? It promotes the St. Augustine Lighthouse it in St. Augustine, Florida, which many people uh, are familiar with. I know you were just there recently. I was. It's a really cool place. It's awesome. And, uh, and we are now sporting. Well, I am sporting. You are, yes. The Parabox Monthly t-shirt from 
the St. Augustine Lighthouse. So this is part of the Ghosts and Haunted Locations series, but they also have other themes, including UFO encounters and aliens, folklore and legends, cryptozoology, and urban legends. You can get them from a month-to-month plan, a three-month plan, or a six-month plan. You get the T-shirts. You try to solve the puzzles. You try to figure out what's going on with it. It's a mystery wrapped in an enigma. Wrapped in a soft T-shirt. So what do you get if you crack the coat? Uh, well, for you get my respect, because I can tell you right now, I've been looking at this all day, and I can't figure out exactly what's going <laughs> on with it. But I think, you know, you got to keep collecting the shirts and try to crack the code. So if you want to get your hands on some, let me show you what comes in the mail. You oh, will get fancy. It's a little ghost. That's awesome. You will get the Parabox box, the actual box from Parabox Monthly. And when you open it up inside... Oh, I took the paperwork out. <laughs> that helps, Tim. That helps. But you will get a letter kind of telling you a little bit about Parabox and, and what's involved. And you will also get a card that describes the haunted location and gives you information about the location or the mystery that you're trying to solve. Mm-hmm. So can't go wrong for that. You can wear the T-shirt. Everybody will come up to you and start talking to you and say, hey, what's that shirt all about? Have you been there? Do you know anything about it? And you'll have all the information because you'll have the card. So if you want to get involved, PowerBoxMonthly.com. When you go to the website, use the code SPOOKYLIVE, and you'll get 10% off. So that's a, a hell of a deal, 10% off by using the code Parabox, uh, using the code SPOOKYLIVE at PowerBoxMonthly. But let me tell you, man, I'll let you guys all feel my shirt later. I don't, be pretty I, impressed. I don't know how I feel about that, to be honest with you. And generally, like, I don't like, you know, you know how I, right. I like my shirts baggy yes. and, you know, I like, yeah, I don't like when clothes, like, touch me. You know what right. I mean? Like, I don't like to be, but this is like a, this is like a warm hug in a t-shirt. It really is. It's that soft. So. You're a whole new person now. I am. I don't know. I'm actually wearing a shirt that fits you. me for once. You are. Instead of. I don't think I've ever seen you wear a shirt that fits you. I thought you would be proud uh, I am. when I said when I told them the actual size instead of like two sizes too big. Wow. So I thought that would uh, turning over a new leaf. And uh, Matt's telling me via via uh, mental telepathy that if you crack the code in these shirts, you get entered to win free stuff. Well, I figure you're gonna win something. Hey, Maureen. It's uh, it's really. I'm just uh, sending Maureen the number. Uh, because I guess... Uh, I think she, he's on the phone with her. Yeah, she tried using it. Oh, and I that's... You know what I did? I mistyped it. Oh, my goodness. That's why. <laughs> I sent her the wrong number. It's the second time that I did that. I sent the wrong number to Danny earlier, too, but I sent him the right one after. That's so. really funny. Send her the right number, would you? I know. Well, because normally when she comes in... You know, normally when she's been on WBSM, she's come in because it's been during the day. But tonight we decided that we had, you know, we wanted to have her on for Spooky South Coast, and she was nice enough to agree to come on, even though, you know, it's a little bit past her bedtime. But she felt it was important to come on and, and talk to the Spooky South Coast audience because we do reach uh, a huge audience around the world, and this is a case that I think needs to really be told to the world because not enough people are aware that this is still unsolved. So let's just bring let's just bring Maureen into the discussion before we get going and really start explaining everything. But let's just at least put her on the phone so that we know that she's there and she knows that we're here and she doesn't have to keep hearing the Red Sox on hold. Are you there with us, Maureen? Yes. Yes, I hear you, Tim. So I apologize for giving you the wrong phone number earlier. <laughs> 
Well, I was uh, starting to think that it was some supernatural uh, thing that's come in and to stop me from calling and talking to you. No, you know what happens is you move out of the newsroom, and then the last thing you think about is uh, all the stuff associated with it, and you start getting into a different mindset, and then you completely forget about it. And, and yeah. then, you know, you got to kind of clear your brain of all this stuff, and apparently I cleared my brain of the uh, VIP call-in line, too. So. Hey, hey, you were only one number off. That's pretty good. At least I didn't. I mean, I wouldn't mind if you have it, but I know that when I have gone out on the air before, I have given out my cell phone number. So, oh yeah. And now every day that I'm now that I'm the the DME every day, I'm typing out like for for people to call in. And when I say for people to call in, I have to type in the call in number to put out on Facebook and Twitter and all that stuff. And one of these days, I just know I'm going to put my cell phone number in there by accident, and my phone's going to be blowing up with uh, Trump supporters calling in to praise Barry for what he's talking about, and I'm not going to know what they're talking about because I'm not in the studio on the air. (laughs) So uh, we do want to talk tonight, though, about a a pretty serious topic and something that uh, we have touched upon a little bit in the past here on Spooky South Coast, but really haven't gotten to very much in depth, and we're going to do that tonight. Uh, On the phone with us, we have Maureen Boyle, who is the author of Shallow Graves, The Hunt for the New Bedford Highway Serial Killer, and in the studio, we have Aaron Kaju, who is the director of the upcoming... Are you co-director, too, this time, or are you just the director? Really sorted out the titles yet. Uh, Co-director for now, I guess. Okay, the co-director of The Highway Murders, (laughs) which is a a documentary... should we say series? Series, yeah. That will be coming out uh, on these murders uh, eventually, uh, as soon as you know Aaron doesn't have to have regular life holding him back. But uh, something that is coming down the pipeline as well, and something that you've been researching for a number of years. Uh, but and I know Maureen, you were there from the very beginning, uh, covering this as a reporter for the New Bedford Standard Times, and we've just hit the anniversary of uh, of when the first victim was found. Can you take us back to what it was like in, in 1988 when when the story? First first broke well what's interesting is uh when the first body was found and when the story first broke it uh it was very much like it was uh last uh this past week very very hot um probably the hottest uh summer that anyone could remember the you know as we look back on, on the highway killings we think of it as uh, something that just burst out into the community, that uh, it was something that was um, here, you know, uh, that, that was ignored for a long period of time because there had been that feeling uh, in some circles that uh, people didn't do enough because the, the women weren't, uh, weren't wealthy, they weren't prominent, um, they, they were addicted to drugs. Uh, however, what we all forget is that 1988, when this case first came um, came out, it came out very, very slowly. Um, when the first two bodies were found, people didn't even realize that there was a serial killer out there. Uh, the women hadn't even been identified. They weren't identified until... December of 1988, and they were the first two were found in July. Uh, it was a very good, when it when the case first started, no one even knew that there was a case out there. If that makes uh, makes sense, uh, because it wasn't as if people knew that there were all these women uh, had gone missing, because they didn't all go missing at once. 
And it, um, there weren't headlines about them going missing because uh, they weren't like abducted in broad, broad daylight. Um, there wasn't anything immediately suspicious at the time. It, it came upon the community a very, very slow process. And it wasn't like, I mean, New Bedford had a lot of, uh, you know, there was crime going on in the city at the time, but it wasn't a lot of, you know, it was very out of the realm to have multiple murders. Uh, certainly not like it is these days, and I, I know that the, the mayor and the chief of police don't want to hear me saying that, but, you know, now we have all these deaths that are happening all the time. We have drug de- uh, drug addiction, the opioid crisis, you know, every day there's there's overdoses that are happening. But when... When a body was found in 1988, that was a pretty big deal and a pretty rare occurrence, right? Um, well, it yeah, it, it was. Um, but you know, New Bedford was a, a fairly safe city in 1988, and yeah, I still consider New Bedford still a very safe city today. Um, it's it happens to be a city that doesn't ignore its crime, and and that's what some other cities do do uh, because people care about the community they care about the people that may fall victim to crime they don't ignore it um, in 1988 there was drug addiction uh, heroin was a, a very serious problem in the community um, there was an opioid uh, opiate crisis in 1988 but people just didn't talk about it um, but with these many uh, deaths, that was very, very unusual. There had always been murders in New Bedford, just as there's always been murders in similar cities um, of the same size as New Bedford. Um, New Bedford wasn't unique in that. What New Bedford is unique, however, is how it approaches um, murders and the deaths of individuals. Uh, generally, people do take notice because they know the people who have been uh, who've been victims. They care about the people who have died. And I, I think even to this day, 30 years later, the community still does care about the women who died in 1988 because they haven't forgotten. And and Aaron, I know that you touch upon this uh, a bit in in the in the early parts of the documentary but at that time new bedford was known for uh you know there was still recently in the news aaron was the the big dan's case yeah the big dan's case happened uh only five years before the highway murders case broke so it was still relatively fresh in the minds of people we interviewed former mayor uh bullard who said that because of the big dance case, when he would travel around as mayor, the further away he got from the city of New Bedford, the more likely it was that somebody knew New Bedford for the big dance case. Mm. And, you know, he thought that that was unfortunate because he felt that New Bedford had a lot more to offer, which it did. And so by the time the highway murders came along, I mean, you know, I looked at, I'm looking at this case from a retrospective perspective because I was only five years old and this is going on so my research is talking to people reading articles from various publications and watching the old news clips and when the highway murders case broke and became prominent probably in you know November December of 88 is when it really started to heat up you did see some mentions of big dance and you know highway murders cast harsh light on city that already had you know the problem of big dance so that became then it became a dual dual 
situation where people remember New Bedford for two reasons at that point. It was both Big Dan's and then the Highway Murders case. When did the movie come out? Uh, for those not familiar, the Big Dan's case was turned into that film, The, the accused, accused. Yeah, The Accused came out in 88, and Jodie Foster won the Best Actress uh, uh, Oscar in 89. So while this case is happening, that's in the spotlight, and New Bedford's getting mentioned in the press, and uh, so it certainly mm-hmm. kind of created a, a, a storm. And, and that, that's one of the reasons uh, also why uh, the Big Dan's case be, uh, really achieved that national prominence is because of the the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, while the, the case was shocking uh, for a number of reasons, uh, one of them was the allegation that uh, the uh, accusers uh, had said, you know, that she said the uh, the accusers were, were cheering like they were at a baseball game. That's what really caught the attention uh, of the media, that one phrase. But Big Dan's case would have uh, died down if not for the film, and that's why people, let's say in California, knew about New Bedford because of uh, the film more than anything else. So New Bedford became synonymous with uh, big bands because of the film, I think. And uh, so, when the the first victim is found uh, in '88, and then you know this starts to to make some news, obviously, because you know when you find a, a body, that's that's going to be news. But at one point, do, did the idea start to come about that you know this it was the work of one person? How, how many victims were found before it started to come become clear that uh, there was a serial killer in New Bedford? Oh. Yeah, the the, um, the first two bodies were found in January, uh, but the third body was not found until November. So the real concern, the real fear, uh, didn't rise until after the third body was found in November. However, between July and November, other women with similar height, similar weight, similar background, and the background was drug addiction, uh, they had gone missing. And one of the New Bedford detectives uh, had noticed that there had there appeared to be a pattern of women who had been who are, have gone missing. Uh, and that's when there was a more concern out in, in the law enforcement community that there may be something else going on. But no one was really saying, yes, we have a serial killer on the loose in the summer of 1988 when uh, some of the other women went missing uh, because they didn't know they had a serial killer out there because there were not uh, 11, uh, nine women found dead in quick succession mm-hmm. early on. And, uh, and Aaron, I know that you've spent a lot of time uh, with the families uh, in recent years, uh, interviewing the relatives of the victims and and uh, and really getting their story and, and helping them tell the story of their loved ones uh, who were who were lost to this. Obviously, they care a lot about their loved ones that were lost, but did they get the sense, Aaron, that it was a lot of like the public sentiment was, oh, it's it's 
you know, it's just these women of questionable reputation. Did they get the sense that maybe the public didn't care as much as they should because of, of the stories that they were hearing about these victims? I think to a degree that they, they felt that way. Um, I think it's a little unfair. Um, I think some of the families are, are a little critical of law enforcement where we've talked to a lot of the people that were very close to this case. And, and it's very obvious that, you know, the lead investigators, the guys like Josie Gonzalez, Marianne Dill, Richie Ferreira, they did care very, very much about the families of these victims in particular. So I think um, some of the criticism may be directed maybe sometimes in the wrong place where there may have been other members of the media from further out that kind of portrayed it as strictly drug addicted prostitutes whereas you know the local law enforcement in this area they, they really did care i mean i think it was slow to develop to to come to the realization that they were dealing with a serial killer and i think that has a lot to do with the fact that th- this is that's a cat of a completely different color a serial killer new bedford yeah it's a, it's got some issues and it can be a rough city but they had never dealt with anything like this before mm-hmm. Um, this is not something that happens in a lot of places. I mean, we interviewed Richie Ferreira, who was one of the primary investigators, and he said none of us had any experience dealing with what we what we would know as a serial killer. It was just a completely new experience and very different from anything that they had done before. And and Maureen, working in the community at that time, I mean, it's it's even now New Bedford is still a pretty tight knit community but you know at that point in in 1988 in the mid to late 1980s we were seeing the mills start to close up uh we were seeing uh, kind of an economic downturn as we were on the verge of of the recession that was coming uh, you know New Bedford was a city that was definitely in transition but at the same time it was especially reading the book you can tell it was a community where people knew one another and people generally even if they you know didn't know one another they tended to look out for one another so this is somebody coming in and and going after some of their own yeah, and, and that was i think the most frightening thing uh, for the community because if it was someone in the community that did this it really shook people to the core whoever was killing the women could be someone they know and if it was someone they knew how scary is that if it's some if it's your neighbor if it's someone that you went to school with is it someone you went to church with someone you've had an interaction with if that person is the killer how safe do you feel and I, I think that was the um, one of the most frightening parts of the case. Even 30 years later, people have come up to me at some of the book events, and they are uh, saying they're relating to the case, saying how frightened they were because they used to drive those same highways. And while none of the women were killed on the highway, the bo- that's where the bodies were left. But people were relating to the case um, based on what they knew, mm-hmm. um, situations that touched them. So um, in, in that regard, everyone in the community was touched by this case um, in some way, whether they knew the victims, whether they knew the families, whether they knew the locations. Uh, they were also very, very uh, concerned about where this was going to end and how this was going to end and why was it happening here 
New Bedford at that time was a fairly isolated city in the state. Um, it was out of the Boston Loop. Um, some of the movers and shapers, if you will, in Boston considered uh, New Bedford the end of the universe. Uh, and that was uh, something that someone had actually said back in the uh, the mid-80s. They called oh. New Bedford the end of the universe. So the, the deaths of the women uh, did shake everyone in the community, did touch everyone, and they were also very, very concerned about how it was going to affect them, how it was going to affect their community, and who might be next. If someone can kill the most vulnerable people in your city, where do they stop? Absolutely. And I think in, in the back of everyone's mind, they're thinking of that. Does it end there? Especially where... It's going to escalate. Especially where it was a community where there was was a lot of uh, vulnerability during that time. Uh, Aaron, because you know, you're know you in the studio, it's easier for me to look at you and, sure. and kind of go one-on-one with you. Just some of the people in the chat room are asking for just a quick overview uh, of, uh, of exactly what happened uh, in this case. And I know that that's kind of hard to, to put into a concise couple-minute answer, but if you can kind of just give people you know, what would be on the back of the DVD, essentially. Sure, and, and Maureen can probably correct me if I'm wrong on any of this, but essentially um, the women in New Bedford that were victims of the highway killer began disappearing sometime in maybe late March, April, and continued disappearing right up until early September. Um, the first victim was found on July 3rd, and the second victim was found on July 30th, and there were still women disappearing after bodies had already been found. And one of the things that I find interesting about this case is that the last victim, Don Mendes, who disappeared on September 4th, was dumped only a mile from the Reed Road exit where they had already been. Uh, she was dumped at the Reed Road exit, and in July there had been a body dumped only a mile down the road. So if the killer was paying attention to the bodies that he was dumping, he still continued dumping bodies close to where he knew bodies had already been found, which to me is an interesting aspect of this of this case. But the women started disappearing in the spring, continued disappearing right up until early September, and then they continued finding bodies all the way up until April, uh, late April of 1989, when they found the last body in Marion, which was Sandra Botello. And there were actually two presumed victims of the highway killer that have never been found, being Christina Montero and uh, Marilyn Roberts. So in total, how many victims are we looking at? Nine found, but 11 altogether, uh, with two that haven't been found yet. Although, you know, to say that this was something that New Bedford hadn't seen before is a little bit incorrect. There were four other homicides dating as far back as 1985 that did have some similarities to the highway murders. The first one being September of 85 with a woman named Shirley Parton who was last seen in a New Bedford bar, found beaten, strangled, and raped, shoved underneath an electrical generator on Herman Melville Boulevard. A year later, another woman named Dorothy Danielson was found beaten, strangled, bludgeoned to death, and sexually assaulted on the railroad tracks only a short distance from where Shirley Parton was found. So in 1986, our Already, I know that Detective Dextrader, who was the New Bedford detective that started putting the pieces together early on the highway murders, uh, already had it in his mind that those two murders may have been connected. And then a year after that, another woman named uh, Joanne Andrade was found bludgeoned and strangled floating in the water off a state pier. And then only a week before the first highway murder victim was found up on 140, a woman named Dawn Copeland was found bludgeoned and stabbed. Uh, shoved underneath the jetty at the end of Rogers Street, just over the line at the Diamond. So there were four other homicides 
that took place in the years leading up to the highway murders themselves, with one of them taking place in the midst of the highway murders. Now, I'm not saying that those are connected, but they were probed at the time for possible connections. But just stepping back and looking at this from a, a, a distant perspective like mine, you had 15 homicides of women of similar demographic that all occurred within a three-year time period with nothing like it before 1985 and nothing like it after 1988 until you found until uh, 2005 when Susana Alvarado was found on the on-ramp from 88 leading to 195. If you look at the statistics of a serial killer, it's about a 1 in 20 million chance that somebody is a serial killer. New Bedford is a small city of about 100,000 people. Just from my personal opinion, I find it very hard to believe that those other homicides are not connected to the 11th. But that's just my personal opinion. And, uh, and Maureen, I know you being in the, in the thick of it when the investigations were ongoing and, and when uh, both the local police, the state police, when they were all involved, heavily involved in the investigation, when the district attorney's office involved in the investigation, were they putting these same pieces together uh, at the time when they started to see not only these victims and, and from similar backgrounds, but also similar MO and, and similar ways that they were uh, being found uh, having been murdered and dumped? In, uh, if you're referring to the earlier murders, they, they did uh, look at those cases, uh, but did not include them in, uh, officially into the, the highway killing case. They did uh, look at them for possible uh, connections. Uh, in at least one of the cases, uh, they had a suspect, um, but not evidence in it uh, to charge. There was, uh, in one of the other cases, they also were looking at a completely different suspect. Uh, so while it was very, very unusual to see those type of, of murders in the city, and those of earlier murders uh, may be related, uh, not necessarily with the, the highway killing, um, but there, there had been earlier murders of women in the city that had been thought uh, very violent cases uh, very violent homicides of women uh, who were considered extremely extremely vulnerable for a variety of reasons either uh, where they were last seen uh, if they had been at a bar uh, things like that so it's not un unusual for women to uh, fall victim to crime uh, in certain uh, situations. But how the, the, those earlier cases, they did look at them um, as part of the highway killing um, investigation. Uh, the earlier victims, uh, the, the victim demographic was, was a bit different uh, than the, uh, the women in the, the highway killings case. Uh, of the women in... The earlier women, their ages uh, were a bit different. Uh, their backgrounds were uh, a bit different. They're a little bit more varied. Um, but that's not to say that they weren't related. I think, and in, in, in the defense of law enforcement, I mean, at that point you had one a year over four years, and then all of a sudden you had 11 over four months. So I think that that, in their defense, even if they were connected, it's, it would be hard to see that back then because... You know, you have one year for four years and then 11 over four mm -hmm. months, it's all of a sudden just things go crazy. So that there was a bit a bit of a difference in the length of time between the murders when you're comparing those other homicides to the actual highway murders themselves. And, and, and particularly with the Shirley Parton case, 
um, I covered that originally, and uh, she had was out. Um, was last seen leaving um, a bar in the city, and that was the last time that she was uh, she was seen. Uh, Dawn Copeland case, they had a couple of suspects in in that case. Uh, they did not have a suspect in the Shirley Parton case that I know of. Um, the Some of the other ones, they had maybe two or three uh, different suspects. They could not find a definitive link in those earlier cases, and I know later on that they did look to see if there was some type of a link. So, again, we're talking but, about... But there had, had also been um, other uh, murders of women during that period of time, however they were solved. We're talking about women, at least the the victims uh, that uh, are, are commonly believed to be the victims of this highway serial killer. Yeah. Were these are women who are, you know, have drug problems, who are known to frequent uh, bars, who are kind of involved with kind of the the seedy underbelly of the city at the time, and there's a lot of questions coming from the chat room. People asking, were all of these victims killed? Uh, in Maureen talked about earlier, and this is something that we had seen through searching the old newspaper archives. It was a record-setting heat in the summer of 1988. And yep. You can see that in the newspaper articles at the time when we're researching the highway murders right alongside, and the headlines are record-setting heat. And just as an example... Uh, Nancy Piva disappeared on July 7th, 1988. She was found just three weeks later on July 30th. And in that short three-week time period, she decomposed to almost pretty much skeletal remains. Yeah. I mean, there was some soft, soft tissue there. But, I mean, that. For, so think about that. She She's only out there for three weeks and decomposes that quickly. Where you have a victim like Robin Rhodes, who was out there for almost a year, or Sandra Patello, who was almost out there for a year. Think about how badly decomposed those women probably were when compared to Nancy Piva, who was only out there for three weeks. I mean, the the, the and a lot of these women were, were found with no clothes whatsoever, some partially clad, some with, with different items. But for a woman that's out there with no clothing, that's been out there for that long. There's not going to be a lot of evidence and it's, left. It's not like they're buried in, uh, you know, no, no, uh, no offense to the book title, uh, uh, Maureen with with shallow graves. But these women are just basically, in many cases, just dumped there, just left there. Yes, exactly. So we're talking about, you know, being exposed to not only the elements, but also, and not no disrespect to the victims, but you've got animals out there, you've got predators, you've got, any, you know, you're victims to the circumstances as, as well as to these murders as well, and that's putting the investigators behind the eight ball even further. We, we, um, we've been lucky enough to track down 
four direct eyewitnesses to finding remains for for our series and in all of the instances these eyewitnesses would say oh you know there was the this not to be graphic but the skull in the rib cage but the hands and hands and feet were missing or there were bones missing or the the things weren't found where you usually would think they would be found because yes animal predation unfortunately is a thing with you know mm-hmm. coyotes and, and scavengers and and they can make up with just, those parts and and we, uh, we interviewed uh, Bob St. Jean who was uh, the, the head of the CPAC unit out of Ron Pina's office at the time and you know um, oh, he's oh, oh, wait, uh, just before we go um, Bob St. Jean is the investigator the DA's investigator before you start getting call, uh, angry call, phone calls from retired state troopers sure um, yeah Bob St. Jean was a, a retired had been a uh, state trooper um, and then became the chief investigator uh, in Ron Pina's office he was not in charge of CPAC um, that's just one of those things to save to save all the angry calls. <laughs> no, yeah, I, I misspoke. Oh I misspoke there. Um, the chief, I, the, his technical, I, his was, title is chief <laughs> investigator. When I would see it in the uh, in the news, but anyway, he said, you know, basically that these crime scenes were very scattered. They weren't compact crime yeah. scenes because of the time that had elapsed. And and these victims were chosen uh, based on it seems like. Uh, on opportunity more than anything else. It w- there was no uh, compelling pattern that would draw the killer to- from one to the other. I mean, there was no, like, distinguishing feature. You know, it wasn't like they were all blondes. You know, it wasn't like, uh, you know, they, they all had a certain figure. I mean, these were just kind of crimes of opportunity. Does that seem uh, accurate, Maureen? Well, all of them were short. Um, all but one were extremely thin. Uh, all but one was all but one were all white. They did have very similar looks um, and similar profiles. Not all, but but pretty much. There, there, there was a lot of similarities in their in their appearances in that regard. The, the ages were pretty varied, though. I mean, Christina yeah. Montero was 19, and Nancy was what 36. Nancy Piva yep. 36. So I mean, there was quite a, a, a gap in the ages. Yeah. So and, uh, and and of course we've discovered that uh, well, I should say we, but uh, Maureen and, and when your work when you were covering the case and, and the investigators were investigating the case and Aaron going back and looking through the lens of you know twenty plus years mm-hmm. later when you started investigating it, they did run in some similar circles. Some of these women were known to each other. Yes, yes, um, but that's not that that unusual. Uh, you're talking about a fairly small city where people know each other. Um, I liken it to uh, people in the news media know other people in the news media. Doctors know doctors, nurses know nurses, teachers know teachers. Um, this is a, a city where there's very large families. Uh, people grow up in the New Bedford area and they stay put. Um, people put down very strong roots in the community. And in the drug community, that is also a very, very tight-knit community. People know each other. Uh, so that they would be, they'd be running in the same circles. They would know the same people. Uh, so it's not that unusual that they would know each other. Uh, drug addicts um, would crash at each other's homes. Um, the women would share clothing. So... Um, so as a result, they may also all have known, they could have all known the killer. 
Right. And um, I, I kind of do want to get into some of that discussion, too, about because there were... Uh, uh, it's, there's so much to cover, and there's so much to go through. And l- let me just say that for anybody who is listening to the show, watching the show on YouTube, uh, absolutely pick up a copy of Shallow Graves. You can get it from Amazon, wherever books are sold. Uh, stay tuned to thehighwaymurders.com, right? That's the website, thehighwaymurders.com, yep. So that you can so you can see the trailers, which will run uh, coming up in a little bit, but you can also keep up to date with when everything's coming out because there's so much to absorb and to learn about this case that we're, n- we're never going to be able to cover it all uh, in the time that we have left tonight. But kind of fast-forwarding a little bit, uh, you know, this case is clearly developing into something that is more than just a, a few random uh, acts. This is something that's starting to look like a pattern, something that's starting to come together. And uh, uh, Maureen, I know that at the time you were speaking on a regular basis with the district attorney at the time, Ron Pina, and a lot of people who are looking back on this case through the lens of time and, and hindsight are yep. looking at him as being somebody who uh, is just a, 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 in some ways, some people look at him as a character of folly. In some ways, other people look at him as somebody who wasn't doing everything that he could have done. Uh, he had his own circumstances in his own life that were questionable and weird. Uh, what was your dealing like with the district attorney at, at the time of these murders? Um, Ron Pina was very media savvy. He was very t- television savvy. Uh, my dealings, I, I dealt with him quite often. Uh, quite frankly, he was not a big fan of the local media. Of the local media, um, he was much more enamored of the Boston media than um, New Bedford Radio or New Bedford Print or. Uh, let's say the very local um, television news. Uh, his sites were much more on Boston and the Boston press. Uh, at least that was my experience. Uh, he, I, I firmly do believe that said that he did want to solve the case. Uh, it was not, uh, and and he. I, I think he truly did believe that he was going after the right person in the case. Uh, you know, the, uh, Kenneth Pont, who is a city attorney, was eventually uh, indicted in uh, for one of the murders. Uh, I do believe that he thought that was the right decision. Uh, but I don't think he was looking at the case clear enough. Uh, and looking at the evidence clear enough because that case, if it went to trial, never would have um, moved forward. And uh, Aaron, I know you've been critical of of Ron Pina. And just let me throw this out there, Aaron. I think we can't talk about him without at least mentioning his own circumstances because... Well, I, 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 you know, it's not so much... We've interviewed quite a few people for this documentary, and yes, he he does catch his his fair share of criticism uh, from some of the people that we've interviewed. Um, I think, to echo what Maureen just said, one of the most interesting interviews that we shot for the documentary was uh, Kenneth Pott's second defense attorney, Kevin Reddington, who was one of the most premier defense attorneys in the state of Massachusetts. 
And Still he is. had a very, very funny quote when uh, we asked him. He was really, Kevin Reddington really wanted that to go to trial. And his quote was, if that went to trial, I would have beaten it like a redheaded stepchild. Hmm. And that was his quote. And uh, he, he was dead on about that. There is no way a jury would have convicted Kenneth Pont based on the evidence that the district attorney had at the time. There's no way. So how did Kenneth Pont I, come I, to... I, agree. I, I have to agree with Aaron there because there was really absolutely no evidence um, against Ken, Ken Pont um, for, that would warrant a conviction. I, I think with Kenneth Pont, I think one of the things that if if you were having a serial killing expert look at this case, the main criticism of Kenneth Pont as a suspect would be the main reason. One of the primary reasons he was looked at is there was an incident where he was charged with an assault back in early April of 1988, and one of the victim, one of the eventual victims, Rochelle Clifford, was with him during this alleged assault. Fast forward to when Kenneth Pont's indicted in 1990. The district attorney in, at the indictment said that Rochelle Clifford was going to testify against Kenneth Pont in this assault case and that Kenneth Pont had killed her to keep her quiet. Now, right then and there, you're attributing a motive to somebody killing another person when, by and large, serial killers do not have a motive. So the, it would have been difficult to extrapolate that and say, well, okay, he kills Rochelle to keep her quiet, but why over the next four and a half months does he go on a killing spree and kill ten other women? It doesn't make any sense. Right. That was, I think, the major problem with the theory that Kenneth Pont was responsible for these murders. And if he did kill the other ten, what would the reason have been? Okay, so he kills the other ones to keep them quiet, but why does he space the killings out over four and a half months? Or he kills the other ones because they're going to publicly out him as a drug user? Well, there were plenty of men that knew Kenneth Pont was a drug user, too, so why did he only kill women? You know, and, and the other thing is... Um, if these women were sexually assaulted, which some of the investigators assume that they were, then if you're killing them to keep them quiet, why sexually assault them first? It, there are a number of things that don't make sense with, with that whole thing. And, and Maureen, being on, on the beat at the time, and, and you probably had crossed paths with Kenneth Pont before he was a, a suspect in this, uh, what was your reaction when, when he was presented as, as a possible suspect in, in at least one of these murders, uh, let alone all of them? Um, quite honestly, I, you know, I, I covered cops and courts for a number of years uh, prior to uh, this case, and I had never crossed paths with Ken Pond. I never saw him in court. I never had to quote him. I never had to speak with him. He was a relative unknown until this case came up. And then when they present the case and, and they start, uh, you know, pointing to him as being uh, the potential suspect, what was your gut instinct about what you were finding out about him as a suspect? Um, I was uh, discovering uh, that he was a very strange man. Uh, he had uh, some serious problems. He, uh, at a young, as a teenager, he was a heroin addict. Uh, he overcame his addiction. He went to college. Uh, eventually became a lawyer. He would have become the, you know, the poster child for recovery. And then addiction uh, rose its ugly head again, this time in the form of coke. And the thinking was, you know, he was embarrassed and didn't want people to know that he had fallen uh, victim to drug addiction again and was sending the girls out picking up girls on the street and sending them out to uh, buy coke for him. Uh, what I was finding out about him was that he was a, he 
had some serious uh, issues, uh, to put it mildly. He was a very, very strange, strange man. And I don't think he did himself any favors when he first was, was being looked at as a suspect. He got very defensive and got his back up. And when you get your back up and get defensive, sometimes that can make you look like you're hiding something. So, you know, when he finally did later offer to submit his own hair and saliva samples and, and at least at one point offer to testify to the grand jury, it was, it was almost too late at that point. It was, I mean, right up to the 11th hour. But in, at least initially, he was, he was very defensive. And I think uh, he got his back up. And uh, had he been treated more of a witness and less of a suspect, you know, maybe it would have resulted in something. Because, you know, th- there is the possibility if, if the killer was somebody entrenched in the New Bedford drug community, it may very well have been somebody that Kenneth Pont had even known. Sure. But that's not to say that Kenneth Pont knew that that person was the killer, you know, but maybe yeah. he would have had information that would have been helpful. Yeah, and, and uh, you're, uh, Aaron's correct. The He really did, did himself no favors in the case. He... Uh, he presented himself almost as a suspect, almost from the start, uh, by his demeanor, by his attitude. Uh, he approached it as, I don't have to talk to anyone because I'm a lawyer, uh, which is true. People don't, do not have to talk to the police, but if he had the thinking in the law enforcement was, well, why is this lawyer who knows some of the victims and appears to be so concerned that they're missing, why isn't he helping in the investigation? And at one point, he was he made up flyers for uh, one of the women who is uh, reported missing. So it, it it didn't make sense to law enforcement, and as a result, that's one of the reasons why he wound up sort of at the top of the list in some circles as a suspect. And uh, he was somebody who, I mean, to this day, when we started, I, I you know, I, I, I made a, a little graphic to promote the show tonight that we were having both of you on as our guests, and that this would be the topic. And I started sharing it around social media. And what do I start getting in the comments for people saying, oh, I thought, I thought they found out that that lawyer did it. Oh, I thought that lawyer was convicted of the murders. And it's just become part of the, the folklore for those that don't know all the facts of the case that Kenneth Pont was the New Bedford Highway serial killer. Yeah, unfortunately, uh, in some circles, that's true. Uh, people don't get beyond the, oh, yes, someone was charged with it, and they don't follow up to the, or forget that uh, the charges were dropped against them. I mean, and Aaron, we've talked about this ourselves, and we've talked about it on the, on the even before his, his death not that long ago, that uh, he was somebody who never really stayed out of the spotlight when it came to having some, some issues. No, that's right, and it's 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 almost sad that 30 years later, I mean, whenever this case gets mentioned on social media, and that's where things are discussed nowadays is social media, you know, whenever the New Bedford Highway murders are mentioned, whether it be on, you know, New Bedford Guide or one of these other Facebook pages or the Standard Times or whatever, there are hundreds and hundreds of comments that follow because, yes, as Maureen said, this case touched the lives of so many people in this area, but there's so much misinformation out there, and Kenneth Pont's name is just the first one that pops mm-hmm. up. Everybody, oh, it was that lawyer, it was that lawyers that lawyer it was like they don't even know the names of some of the other people that were suspects and i think 
Kenneth Pont, of, of the four primary suspects that they had back then, his name was most frequently mentioned in the press. I mean, by the time 1990 rolled around, it really was just Kenneth Pont's name from the beginning of 1990 right up until his indictment in the summer of 1990. It just became hyper-focused on Pont. It became a back-and-forth between Kenneth Pont and Ron Pena in the media, and so that's the name that everybody remembers. And He's the one that's indicted. He's the one that's at the courthouse. He's the one that's saying absolutely not guilty, Your Honor. And then once he's indicted, and then once Ron Pina loses the election, things really go quiet for the year leading up to the dismissal of his, his indictment once Paul Walsh takes office because Paul Walsh's approach to the district attorney's office was so different from Ron Pina's. So by the time the indictment is dismissed, the case has been really quiet for almost a year. Was there something, Maureen, at the time between... I mean, was this a personal vendetta type of situation between Ron Pina and, and Kenneth Pont where you know they just became each other's mortal enemy over this case? Um. I think in um, in Ken Pond's mind, uh, there was. Uh, I don't quite think it was the same with uh, Ron Pina. Uh, for Ron Pina, uh, he was, as a prosecutor, uh, he, did, he, he wouldn't have taken it uh, that, that personally. Uh, he did not have a vendetta against uh, Ken Pond. Um, Ken Pond, I suspect, was just a, a, a blip in his uh, his circle. He did have a funny, um, Ron Pina had a funny quote. There was a, a story that ran on uh, WJAR when the election, right, right at the election in September after Pont had been indicted. And Ron had a funny quote about, I didn't just have Paul Walsh as an opponent, I had Ken Pont as an opponent. And hmm. he kind of chuckled, which I thought was kind of a funny a funny quote, because he really did, he really had two opponents at that point. At that point. Yeah, because uh, uh, it, 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 it is very unusual for a murder suspect to campaign for uh, campaign against you and campaign for your opponent, uh, much to Paul Walsh's chagrin. Right, it's not. I don't think it was anything Paul was looking to have happen, but uh, <laughs> nonetheless. And so, when when Paul Walsh does uh, win the election and take over as district attorney, which I think, uh, you know, obviously part of that election was the fact that Ron Pina could not get the, uh, you know, get the actual serial killer. So people are looking to Paul Walsh as being the new guy and being the guy that can come in with a fresh set of eyes. What was it like, Maureen, at that time as he was stepping into the role of district attorney and he was looking into this investigation? And how did you see kind of the, the wind shifting when he took over? Um, Paul Walsh had a, a very, very different approach uh, to the case. Uh, a much more uh, prosecutorial uh, approach. I mean, you know, others may disagree, but it, his approach was more, okay, let's take it out of the headlines and let's look at the case uh, from the law. And is there evidence? Um, can this case move forward? Uh, the special prosecutor who he brought in... Uh, Fully ex told me he fully expected that he was going to be trying the case. Uh, it, he was not expected, did not expect to quote unquote dump the case. Um, he wasn't brought in as a you know political foil to say okay. Um, so I brought in a special prosecutor and this guy says there's no um, there's no case, so we're going to drop it. Uh, that was that was not the approach that the special prosecutor took. He did go through all of the evidence in the case, as did 
off to a certain extent. And what they found was there was no evidence that you could bring to court and uh, get a conviction. But Walsh did things very, very differently than Ron Pino. While Ron Pino would call a press conference um, and make announcements uh, before the cameras, Paul Walsh was a little bit more circumspect in, in that regard. Uh, he let the police do their job um, and then just moved forward from there. Uh, he was less, someone say, might say he was less media savvy. Uh, other people might say that he wasn't looking to grab headlines. I think it was, he just had a very, very different approach uh, with the job, different philosophy. And 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 not to not to say that uh, you know Ken Pont was found to not be the New Bedford Highway serial killer, but as you mentioned, there just wasn't enough evidence against him to bring it to trial where they thought they had the chance of getting a conviction. It, exactly, and they when they dropped the charges, it was. Not with prejudice, which means that they could, if they had evidence in the future, they could have brought charges against him again. And uh, and Aaron, I know that we've talked about this because the last time that I think I saw you was when Paul Walsh was here in the studio, and I, and and you had been involved in that discussion, and uh, and and he ended up moving into his own suspect that he thought was uh, behind this. Yeah, Paul Walsh on the record to this day says that uh, Anthony DeGrazia was his favorite suspect in the highway murders case. And so who was Anthony DeGrazia and how does he tie Anthony into DeGrazia this? was a, a young, very young man uh, who lived in Freetown at the time of the highway murders. He was somebody who had a reputation for coming into New Bedford, picking up prostitutes and strangling them in his pickup truck. And he became, his name first came to the public light in early May of 1989 from leaked uh, testimony from the special grand jury. One of the one of his victims came right out of the steps of the, the courthouse after testifying to the special grand jury and basically outed Tony DeGrazia as a suspect. Uh, and then from that point, his name was pretty hot and heavy in the press for a while, but then eventually his name kind of just faded out. Uh, and then the focus of the investigation went to Pont. And then after the indictment against Pont was dismissed, then DeGrazia once, was once again arrested for trying to strangle a woman in his truck in November of, of, of 19, uh, 1990. So he, his name kind of popped up once again. And then once the indictment was dismissed, uh, it, so the, the announced the indictment was going to be dismissed on a Thursday, I believe. That Saturday, uh, Anthony DeGrazia commits suicide, and then on that Monday, the indictment against Pond is officially dismissed. So the timing of the DeGrazia suicide was was very suspicious in the eyes of, of some people. And the special prosecutor, Paul Buckley, who was brought in by Paul Walsh, on the steps of the courthouse after the indictment has been officially uh, null-prossed against Kenny Pond, says that Anthony DeGrazia was, in his opinion, the best suspect in the case. And at that point, DeGrazia is already dead. I mean, Maureen, take us into the you know the newsroom at the time. You're just sitting there with, you know, Kurt and and Sue and whoever else might have been around at that time, just talking over this this guy as as a suspect. And you got to look at his, uh, you know, what what he was known for doing around the city. And you got to think this has got to be the guy who is responsible for this, just based on his track record alone. Oh, you mean uh, Tony DeGrazio? Yeah. Uh, well, Tony DeGrazio is. Uh the case against Tony DeGrazia sort of uh, 
slowly emerged over a period of time. Uh, the first uh, the first wave of uh, charges against him that that came that followed shortly after one uh, one prostitute uh, who testified before the grand jury came out and mentioned um, uh, Tony as a suspect. And shortly after that, there was uh, he was charged with a, a number of cases uh, where they alleged he uh, uh, picked up some women and uh, uh, throttled them uh, until they were unconscious and then sexually assaulted them. Um, and a portrait of him emerged at that time as a very troubled uh, individual. Uh, he had told uh psychiatrist that he had been abused, physically abused as a child. Uh, there was some other family dysfunction in in, uh, in his life. Uh, so he came across as, in some ways, a very dangerous individual and also a very sad uh, individual. So we were looking at him as, yes, he he could possibly be the killer uh, or a very, very strong suspect. Uh, one of my colleagues uh, at the time, Natalie White, had interviewed uh, Tony's brother and a very strong portrait of what life was uh, in the DeGrazia household in particular for Anthony as he was a child emerged. Uh, and it, it would have fit uh, some of the abuse that he suffered would have fit that classic serial killer, killer profile. That said, that doesn't mean that he was a killer, to be fair to him. I, I think... Uh, but, oh, sorry. Didn't mean to cut you, you off, know, We'd be talking about the case, um, and of course, at that time, uh, Kurt Brown, who now works at the Standard Times, he was working at the Fall River Herald, so we were technically uh, competitors. He was working at the Fall River Herald with um, another reporter, uh, Carol Costa Kroll, mm -hmm. who eventually returned back to the Standard Times. Uh, so we were we were competing at that that time. So we would discuss in the Standard Times newsroom um, Sue, uh, Natalie, and several other uh, people. Now, okay, where do we go next with this case? And is it possible that he could be the killer? Or is it someone else? Uh, and keep in mind, at that, that time, in real life, uh, the story changed daily, sometimes even hourly. Uh, so there wasn't an awful lot of uh, long, heartfelt uh, discussions about uh, motives and um, who might be the killer, although... Uh, later on after work we would have discussions on who might be the killer uh, but during the newsroom itself uh, in the newsroom itself we often were just trying to figure out what the police knew and what was the word on the street and Tony emerged as a very likely good suspect yeah uh, the only the only thing with Tony and you could basically put this across the board with all of these suspects. These are all guys 
that lived in this area their entire lives. And Tony DeGrazi had been in trouble for attempted rapes as far back as 1980. So why, this if this guy lived in this area his entire life, that all of a sudden, in April of 88, from April to September, he's going to kill 11 women, but then he doesn't get questioned in the highway murders until April of 1989, and then he becomes publicly a suspect in, in May. So what was he doing from September to, to April? It's just he was a great suspect just based on his track record. Um, but there is that question, like I said, across the board with all the primary suspects from back then is why would any of them just up and decide over this four and a half yeah, month mean, period that they're going to kill all these women? Generally, too. Yeah, and, and, now, and, and, and I agree with Aaron on that. That was really one of the, the key things there. Why in that short period of time? Uh, and then why did it stop? Right. A serial and, killer and, would and keep going with that attention. A serial killer wouldn't wouldn't go and hide in the shadows and and wait it out. I mean, he would take advantage. Well, with, with Degrassi in particular, he had a relationship with with a with a young lady from from Freetown, and she actually ended the relationship right around the time that the murders actually stopped. And you would figure if there were ever a time that the murders would accelerate, mm-hmm. it would be after his fiance dumps him. But that's essentially when things stop. So there were some some question marks with him. Um, as far as far as timeline goes, um, but yeah, I, I mean, of uh, it, it's it's interesting when you look at Tony DeGrazia as compared to Kenneth Pont as suspects, and it's it's hard to believe that of the two of them that Pont was the one that was indicted because DeGrazia on paper I think was a much better suspect. I, I do want to ask a question from the chat room, and uh, I'm going to ask it to both of you, uh, but I am going to ask you in different ways because. This question might be hard for it's it's going to be two different perspectives because Aaron's going to be looking at it through the lens of time and and all these years later Maureen was in the thick of it while it was happening but the question is whether or not the investigation into this and and where it led and and the indictment being dropped and all of this stuff the question is if there was some kind of a good old boys network going on here at the time that would have blinded some of the justice that was being happened and not in the good way. You know, that may have uh, put blinders on them when it comes to certain things. Uh, Aaron, I know that we've talked in the past that the the issue at the time was being so shortly after the Big Dan's case and being something that was getting national he- headlines at the time was it would not be the time to be trying to pull anything like that. People were hypersensitive of that uh, possibility. Has that been... You know, looking back through things, is that the way that you look at it? Was I'm sorry, I'm having trouble following you. What, what's so the, the, the question is if there was any kind of a, a, you know, protect their own type of thing going on. A good old boys network here where... You mean with law they enforcement? Weren't, they weren't trying to, to find the killer. No, I, 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 from my perspective looking back, I absolutely think that they were doing everything that they could, especially the investigators. But like I said, none of the investigators here had ever dealt with anything like that before. Mm-hmm. Um, this was, you know, as, as much crime as New Bedford may have had back at that time, gang violence is very different from a serial killer. Serial killer can happen anywhere. It can right. happen in suburbia. It's not something that's, that's, that's more likely to happen in a major city. Maybe it is just based on that that's where the population is, but serial killers can happen a- anywhere. So I just think that law enforcement just had never dealt with something like this before. And, and Maureen, you're there while it's happening. You're seeing this, the, the toll that this is taking on people in law enforcement, in the justice system on a day-to-day basis. You're seeing how it's weighing on them and, and, and how it's uh, affecting their lives. What, what was your sense of just the, the atmosphere and the mood around all of it? Well, I, I do think that uh, during that period of time, 
there was intense pressure on the district attorney's office to solve it and solve it quickly uh, so that there wouldn't be this quote-unquote bite on the city. And there, there was that pressure, um, both from, uh, you know, from politicians and from certain business and community leaders. But that said, uh, I don't think that pressure was uh, trickled over to the law enforcement side. Uh, but I, I think perhaps the questioner was wondering whether they there was a whether they were covering up for someone that was high up in the community, and I don't think that they they were. Right. Well, you said that you don't think that pr- the pressure trickled over to law enforcement. How do you, how do you mean by that? Um, cops have a tendency not to pay attention to politicians. Okay. <laughs> generally, I mean, some do, but I don't think that pressure uh, uh, trickled over to law enforcement in terms of uh, a quick resolution, just to get it just to boom the case. Okay, I just um, want to make sure that we... To find the correct uh, duck killer, the right person. I didn't want anybody to misinterpret that as being like they didn't feel like they wanted to, to solve it. They wanted to be methodical and to do yes, the investigation yes. yeah, the right way. They wanted to be very, very methodical. They, they weren't looking to just find someone to arrest. That, I mean, in that, that to just to, to continue on with that, there were disagreements in law enforcement. I mean, you have varying opinions across the board. Some investigators are still adamant to this day that Kenneth Pont had something to do with these murders. Other investigators are absolutely sure that he didn't have anything to do. And some of the un- other investigators think Tony DeGrazio was likely the one who committed these murders. We have another investigator that thinks still to this day that Neil Anderson was somehow involved in these murders. Mm-hmm. So y- the opinions vary based on individual members of law enforcement, and they did not always agree with the direction that the case was headed from one district attorney to the next. There was a lot, there was some friction behind. Behind the scenes, especially with the transfer of power between Ron Pina and Paul Walsh, there was some friction uh, at that time. And some people had opinions one way, some people had opinions the other way, and those opinions are the same today with some of these people. And and, and yep. Maureen, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yep, I, and I agree with Aaron. Um, depending on who you, uh, you talk with, uh, each person will have a completely different answer of who they believe the killer was. And it is not, and it's never the same person. Uh, there, there are at least four to five different names out there, and it all depends on who you talk to. And, and one of the, and the actual killer may be someone completely different. One, one of the questions that's come up in the chat room too is people are asking about you know the the profiling of the suspect, but profiling was something that wasn't really, uh, you know, it wasn't really an accepted science and law enforcement yet at that point, was it in 1988? Um, in 1988, uh, yes, the, the FBI uh, had a profiling unit. Uh, it was an established unit, uh, but it was still in some circles considered a very new, uh, new type of uh, approach to uh, law enforcement. And, uh, it, w- it wasn't the hard evidence that, that investigators were used to looking for. Exactly. And, and that, that was really uh, the concern for the the, the average detective. Uh, when they were looking at the uh, 
profiles and the uh, profiling unit and the information that they, uh, the FBI was able to provide. I think that they were hoping that somehow the uh, profiling unit would give them that magic bullet that says, aha, this is the person who it is, and that's just how it works. Right. And even then, you'd still have to find that physical evidence that ties them into it. You couldn't convict somebody just based on a profile. No, and, and generally the profiles are not that specific. I think that if I, I, I think that if the FBI were to offer their opinion, especially with with a guy like Kenneth Pont, as applying trying to apply the serial killer profile to a guy like that, I think the FBI, had they been consulted on the indictment of Pont, would have said absolutely no way would that guy have been the New Bedford serial killer. I, that's just my opinion. I you know I just don't think the FBI would have agreed with that. Well, uh, Aaron had mentioned Neil Anderson uh, as another suspect. Uh, Maureen, tell us a little bit about about him and how he came to be thought of as a potential suspect. Maureen's the reason why Neil Anderson was a suspect <laughs> in this case. Um, uh, no, the, his victim is the reason why he was a suspect in the case. Uh, yeah, don't don't pin he, that blame on Maureen. <laughs> well, it was Maureen's article, though. I mean, she she there, there, basically there was a a woman that was uh, you know when disappearances and the body started showing up. Uh, in the in December, it was December of, of '88. Um, a woman I knew uh, on the street had approached me and told me about a another woman that she had heard was a uh, had been sexually assaulted by a guy, uh, in off of the highway, off of 195 in Dartmouth, and I tracked her down, interviewed her, and. She told this horrific story about being picked up and brought to a secluded area, and the guy tried to kill her. She got choked her. She got away. Um, we did a story on it, uh, and they identified, police uh, interviewed her, and they identified, eventually identified the suspect as uh, Neil Anderson. Uh, he was also charged with several other rapes of women and eventually convicted. So he did emerge as a very, very early suspect in the case. And he's the only living suspect of the four primaries that they had yep. back at that time. And he's he's actually someone we were we actually interviewed in prison. Uh, we wrote him a letter. Basically, our approach with this with this documentary series has been: if your name comes up as part of the story and you're still alive, you have an opportunity to speak on your own behalf, no matter what your role was in this. And uh, we wrote him a letter, thinking uh, he's probably not gonna not gonna take this opportunity. You know, he jumped on it, and uh, we did. We were allowed to go interview him. He's currently incarcerated for an unrelated string of bank robberies. Um, but it was really interesting to sit and talk to somebody that was actually a one-time early suspect in, in the highway in the highway murders case. And you get a perspective of at least how he saw the investigation taking part through his eyes and, and his role and his involvement in it. And uh, and there was a fourth suspect as well, Aaron? Uh, yeah, uh, another guy named James Baker from Tiverton, Rhode Island, uh, was another suspect uh, in the case who had a reputation for uh, hanging around the World Square area, making an effort to, in some cases, try to reform some of these girls and get them off of drugs. Uh, some of the sources that we've talked to, it's funny, of the four primary suspects, he got the least amount of press coverage of the four of them, but if you talk to some of the people involved in the investigation, they thought they had it with James Baker. At one point, they thought he was the guy, um, but then through some digging around and some uh, thorough investigation, they were eventually able to to discount him as a suspect. And James Baker was very cooperative 
in the investigation, and he actually passed a polygraph of the flying colors. Not that a polygraph is 100% hard science, but um, based on those circumstances, he was uh, uh, basically eliminated as a suspect. And, and Maureen, I know that obviously, you know, it's not nearly as frustrating as it must have been for, for law enforcement and for uh, those in the justice system, but it must have been frustrating for you uh, covering this case and being involved in it for, for so long and seeing the day-to-day developments of it that it nothing ever came to a conclusion. There was no finality to it that you are looking at something now 30 years later that is still unsolved. Yeah, that is very frustrating, and it's it's frustrating for me, but can you imagine how heartbreaking it is for the families, too, where, you know, 30 years later and they still don't have justice. And 30 years later, keep in mind, there are still two women who went missing in 1988, and they have not been found. Uh, Marilyn Cardoza Roberts and uh, Christina Montero, uh, both of them went missing in 1988, and they haven't been found. And that, that, I think, is one of the most frustrating um, elements of the case for law enforcement, uh, that not finding the killer, uh, and the most heartbreaking thing for their families. And uh, and I want to just take a moment here and recognize that uh, that we do have some family members of the victims that are in the chat room uh, that are listening and watching the show and uh, and. Hopefully that they feel like we are presenting this with uh, the right amount of respect. And for those of you who usually listen to Spooky South Coast and are used to us talking about snacks by this point in the show, you know, usually by this point we're talking about candy and food, uh, but uh, because we get hungry. But uh, you know, we we want to make it clear that uh, we're not trying to be exploitative at all about this. Uh, this being the, it's it's a weird word to use, but the anniversary week of the uh, of the first victim being found. That we just felt like we needed to uh, take this time to to discuss this topic in in depth and hopefully with the with the gravity that it deserves. But uh, I mean, that being said, this is something that has become kind of revitalized a bit uh, with Maureen's book and with the interviews that Aaron has been doing and the discussions that he's been having and the the early press coverage on on the documentaries that are forthcoming. Aaron, I know that you've been in touch with law enforcement, uh, current law enforcement, the some of the people that are currently on the force, uh, with the current district attorney. What is your sense of, of where this stands today? Uh, your guess is as good as mine on that one. They play that pretty co- pretty close to the vest, you know, for, for ever, you know, from for quite a long time now. It's been it's it's an open investigation, and that's pretty much as as much as they'll say. And Maureen, do you have any insight to how much resources they may be dedicating to continuing with this, or is it kind of just sitting back and hoping that something else will break somewhere down the line? No, I think that they are uh, still continuing to um, actively look at the case. I mean, it is not a day-to-day, uh, full-time uh, investigation as it was in uh, the late 80s and early 90s, uh, but they are. It is uh, still very much, I suspect, and from what I'm hearing, very much an active investigation. Uh, that does not mean that's a close to an arrest. That does not mean that uh, there will suddenly be an indictment next week. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, there would be, but you know that that would be very, very doubtful. Uh, but I don't think this is an, a, a forgotten uh, case. 
I mean, what's it going to take, Aaron? And I, this might be a little bit of a loaded question because you're not an investigator. You're not in law enforcement. But how much can we look at this 30 years later and say that they haven't exhausted all the resources that they could have in that time? I mean, this is a long time to be working on an investigation. Well, the, the a hopes, lot of stones have probably already been overturned. Always, yeah, the hopes always get pinned on, on DNA evidence. And that's one of the major questions with this case is what do they have in terms of DNA evidence? And people, there's a misconception when you say DNA evidence and people say, well, they can still extract bone marrow. It's like, no, we know who the victims were. Right. We're talking about DNA of the. That's you know, it's it's sad how often I hear that people say, that yeah, people say, yeah, people say, oh well, they they could extract bone marrow. It's like, yeah, well, we know who these women were. They all were identified. Uh, it took a while yeah. with some of them, but they were. We're talking about them finding the DNA profile of somebody else on these bodies, yeah. and whether they have that or not is 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 a big question. And if they do have it, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's the DNA of the killer. It, I've always said, and this is something that you know you don't have to be a forensic scientist to figure this out. They would have had to have found the same matching DNA mm -hmm. profile on at least two of these girls to at least make the jump that that is the DNA of the killer. You can't just find a hair fiber on one of these girls that doesn't right. belong to them and say, aha, that's the killer. You would have to find that DNA on at least two of the girls to even remotely come to the conclusion that that's the DNA of the killer. And based on the, the, the state of decomposition on some of these victims and the fact that some of them were found with so little in terms of clothing and, and personal effects... Uh, I think that it would be very difficult to definitively come up with the DNA profile of the killer. But that's just my my opinion from the outside looking in. And uh, Aaron, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Maureen, I want to say that, too, that th there's some questions in the chat room uh, that have come up uh, about the book. Again, it's called Shallow Graves, The Hunt for the New Bedford Highway Serial Killer. Uh, there is a question about whether or not it is the only book that has been written about the topic, and it's, it's not. There was, there's no, been there was other... one in the in the early 90s. And um, I, listen, I know that uh, you lived through this case at that time. I know, Aaron, this, the, the, that book was a big part of the research that you were involved in. Maureen's book is much more well-written than I, the I, previous book. I just wanted to point out, it's very <laughs> much it's very much early 90s true crime. I'm going to write I, this in a sensational style. I'm just style talking in terms of, of, week. of gr sentence structure and grammar and right. readability. I mean, there, there were things in that other book um and there was some interesting things in the book and one of the things that he had that uh, maureen wasn't as lucky to have and just as based on his health is an actual interview with ron pina mm -hmm. um and that was an interesting it was interesting to read what ron pina had to say to carlton smith back at time back at that time but other than that there were parts of that book that i would have to go back and reread like three times to get the gist of what he was saying whereas maureen's book you know you can read read a page once and uh, absorb it and know exactly what she was saying and then turn the page the, the Carlton Smith book, which is called <laughs> Killing Season. So when when I read Killing Season, it was very reminiscent to me of when I read uh, the the Amityville Horror book for the first time. That it was very influential, very informative, and then I went back and reread it again years later and said, "This book is total crap." <laughs> like not, not that the information is bad, but the guy just doesn't know how to write. And that's what I got from Killing Season. Is it's very much written in like I want to get my 
book picked up as the NBC TV movie of the week. Well, Maure- Maureen, I mean, I, you know, Maureen can speak to this more than I can, but she covered the case front to back and mm-hmm. was boots on the ground in this area, and he kind of just came in for periods, a couple, maybe once or twice, talked to a handful of people, and went back to wherever he went to write the right. book, whereas Maureen had a much closer relationship with everybody. And, and the other thing to point out, Maureen, too, is that this wasn't something like, you know, you retired from working at the paper and moved into uh, into teaching and said, okay, now I'm going to sit down and write this book. This is something that had been kind of festering in you for all of these years to to actually sit down and and work on this. I'm assuming that you probably had some starts and stops throughout that time. Yeah, I I did. Um, And and unfortunately, what I was... I kept on thinking that there would be an ending, quite honestly. I kept on waiting for the killer to be caught so there would be that definitive ending of this is the answer, this is who it was. And, you know, first it's 10 years, then it's 15 years, then it's 20 years, um, and nothing. Uh, then I thought, well, maybe I'll, I'll write a novel based on it, and then I can come up with an ending. And that just didn't seem right. Uh, right. And you know, then I said, okay, um, everything that I've written before, I'm just going to finally just do it. And because people were starting to forget about the case and or, or had missed information about the case and it was really important to actually get the facts out there in a clear and concise manner so that uh, people will know what really happened in New Bedford in 1988 and by the way today is also the 30th anniversary of the disappearance of Nancy Lee Pipe Um, she was the second victim who was found Um, and today was the day that she went missing I know with Aaron, he has the, uh, funny word to use, but he has the advantage of he's got people speaking to the camera in their own words. Uh, mm-hmm. He has news footage from the time. Uh, so he's he's telling the story through the eyes of the people that lived it and, and not kind of having to be this uh, omniscient narrator party to it. Uh, but with you, Maureen, when you're putting the book together, did, you must have felt, felt a sense of responsibility not only to the victims, but to all the people that you knew that were involved in this, in the investigation, in the prosecution, and into all of this, to say, I can't let any of these people down with the way that I'm presenting this information. I, that's true. That's true, because it's uh, it, it is a very, very important story for so many people. Uh, it affected so many people, um, and it affected so many people in the community. Uh, that that you do have an obligation as a reporter to um, present your piece um, in the most accurate and um, responsible way possible. Maureen just mentioned... And and, uh, and I tried to, so uh, (laughs) whether I was successful or not, I, I hope that I was. Maureen mentioned misinformation, and just from my perspective, the amount of misinformation that's out there about this case is absolutely staggering. And one of the biggest frustrations that I come across is you'll see a discussion about the highway murders, and someone will say, wasn't that Carl Drew that did that? 
And it's like, oh, God, these are two separate cases separated by a decade's worth of time. And people just with a casual knowledge, they confuse the highway murders with the Fall River case. Then there's other people that throw Mary Lou Arruda into the mix. And it's just, I just want to shake. It's like, these are, you know, we're trying to set the record straight on exactly what happened, like Maureen just said, and kind of put to bed some of these crazy stories and rumors that come out, that have come out of this case. But that's the problem when you don't have... A, a conviction when you don't have, uh, well, I mean, even in the case of Mary Lou Arruda, you do, and Carl Drew, you do, but still, like, you don't have that finality to it, so it's easy for there to be this, uh, you know, well, and then, you know, you conflation got, of all these different uh, cases. Uh, murdered prostitutes, so that's why the, the Fall River case gets so confused with, with the highway murders. I think it's just you hear murdered prostitutes and people just casually that were paying attention back at that time just confused the two cases. I'm 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 going to let Stephanie ask the million dollar question because uh, you're so nice. I know that she wants to. Well, it's it's. Well, I want to know first. I'm going to ask really a different question. Be, but um, with the amount of time that you both have spent in dedicating your lives to this story, do you feel or are are you hopeful that bringing this up now, thirty years later, will eventually lead to a conviction or the information that you everybody's looking for? Yes. Yeah, I would say yes. Uh, yeah. yeah, like is that your end goal? Is what I'm asking. Um, yes. We have a lot of people that are have been asking all night. Why do you believe the killings started, and why do you think they stopped? And then I'll ask you the million dollar question. I have no idea why they started, or why they why they stopped. Um, I, we are only going to get that answer when we know who the killer is. If you if you listen to the experts in serial murders, they only stop because well, actually I shouldn't say that there are serial killers that go dormant, like the BTK serial right. killer went dormant. Uh, but most of the time, they stop because either the killer moves away, he dies, or he's incarcerated. Correct. Very seldom do they stop for no reason. I mean, that does there are exceptions to the rule. And one of the other things with Tony DeGrazia. Uh, there were like 17 different prostitutes that survived attacks by Tony mm-hmm. DeGrazia. And if you talk to somebody like Jack Levin up at Northeastern University, he'll say, well, that doesn't, then Tony DeGrazia is not a good suspect as a serial killer because serial killers don't usually leave that many survivors in their wake. But then you look at what just happened out in California with the, the was the Golden Gate, whatever, serial killer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He had like 12 survivors. So, I mean, there are exceptions to the rules when it comes to when it comes to these guys. So you can't always go by the rule book on these things. And the million dollar question, who do either of you believe committed these crimes? Or are you comfortable um, Aaron's away us? from the microphone on purpose, Maureen. He wants you to go first. <laughs> yeah, um, um, I, I have my suspicions, but um, I, I, I wouldn't share them. I don't think it's fair. Um, I'll let law enforcement make an arrest or come up with definitive proof of who they believe uh, is the killer. Um, It's just not fair, particularly in this community where there are so many uh, families uh, of suspects that are still alive and are still in the community. are you comfortable? It's not fair to the, the victims, the victims' families. Are you comfortable telling and, and us whether I, or not you I believe? Could, and I could be wrong. I'm not a cop. <laughs> I'll leave it to the cops to identify who the killer is. Are you comfortable Aaron? telling us if you believe they they were already named, or do you believe it's somebody else? Uh, I don't know. Okay. That, that. No, that's fair. That's no, fair. No, that's fair. Just asking what you're comfortable with. 
Yeah, yeah I'm going to take the fifth on, on this question for now. I figured. Um, you know, there's still more work to be done on our project. Um, so for now, yeah. And, and not only that, but, you know, we're we're also, as Maureen said, you know, we're we're not in the thick of it. So it's easy to armchair investigate, mm-hmm. you know, and, and to, to kind of pick and choose. And we don't want to have, you know too much of an influence on the audience and having them walk away being like, well, you know, if, uh, if Tim and Stephanie and Matt and Matt think that it's this person, then that's good enough for me. Like, no, let's let it all play out and see what happens down the line. I will say this, though, that it's people will look at this and say, oh, I can understand why Maureen got involved in this. Being on, on the ground, covering this case as it happened, people will look at Aaron and say, hey, why the guy that did the Bridgewater Triangle documentary get involved in this case? But we've talked about this for years and and you have a very strong sense of why you need to tell this story well number one it's never been told in this format before yes the news covered it back at that time and and yes some of the true crime programs like west west 57th street would come in and do like a half hour episode but it's never been told in documentary film format before and it's the perfect story to tell in a series format you could not do this story justice by telling it in one single two-hour documentary um and I think that uh, it's it's a story that needs to be told in this format by people from this area that have access to this area that uh, that can go run and do an interview with somebody at the drop of a dime rather than having to come in from California to do it. And the whole reason that this is happening is I have to credit Alan Alves for that. I mean, Alan Alves we interview is a retired detective from Freetown. Uh, three of the victims were found in the, within the city limits, within the town limits of, of Freetown. So he was involved in the investigation. When we interviewed him for the Bridgewater Triangle documentary, uh, after the camera stopped rolling one day, he in his in his deep Allen voice said, "You know, Aaron, if you if you're looking for another topic for a good documentary, you should do the Highway Murders." And I had heard of the Highway Murders, obviously, growing up in this area. I was only very young when when it was going on, but. Uh, you know, this was before Maureen's book was released, so the first place that we went to, of course, was Killing Season. And that did at least give us a good sense of the chaos that was ensuing here back at that time. And we very quickly decided, uh, my partner Dave Grokmal and I, that uh, this was something that we wanted to do. And then the next thing was to go into the newspaper archives and start pulling the articles and researching that way and then talking to the people that we that were involved. And then when it's all said and done, we've interviewed well over 60 Wait, people. You're talking from from a, from a investigative and, and journalistic perspective, but at some point the human aspect of this hit you too as you were sitting down and talking to those families. And, and I remember you sending me a message when you said, like, things have changed. It's oh, it's 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 heartbreaking. It's absolutely heartbreaking. And you know, I I I wasn't involved in this back at that time. But to see, you know, you 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 look into the you know, when you when you're telling the story in this format, you can look into the eyes of the people that that lost loved ones, and they're agonizing over this for thirty years that there's no answers to their questions. And these were, you know, it's it, it sounds cliche, I guess, but these were people's mothers and and daughters and sisters and loved ones. And they were cared about, and they weren't as off the radar as some people have suggested. You know, it's often suggested these women weren't in contact with their families when they were in contact with their families. I mean, they have definitive dates that some of these women disappeared because that's the last time that, you know, their family had heard from them regularly up until the date that they disappeared. So these women were loved. And uh, it's it's just heartbreaking to hear the stories of these families. And and we are appreciative of the fact that they have been so supportive of what we're doing. And so cooperative, uh, just across the board. 
And and Maureen, I know that you've uh, you know you've been in contact with people involved in the case, families, law enforcement, everybody over the years. So there was always, I'm sure, their voice in the back of your mind as you're putting this together. But now that you're out talking about the book, you're out uh, sharing information about the book, going on a, a little bit of a, a tour and, and spreading the word about this case, uh, you're you're getting people that are coming up to you and saying, you know, that was a, a family member of mine. And, and the fact that somebody's actually telling the story and putting it back in the public eye means a lot. I'm sure you're hearing that on a regular basis. Uh, yes, I am. Uh, and I'm also uh, stressing to people uh, that if they hear anything, uh, or if they know anything, perhaps they were afraid to come forward um, 30 years ago to please get in touch with law enforcement and the district attorney's office and share it, whatever little uh, tidbit they, they have. Uh, and as I've told people many times at some, some of the events, people's lives change over 30 years. Uh, someone who may have been within an abusive relationship 30 years ago and was afraid to come forward or they were addicted to drugs uh, 30 years later they're in a different uh, place in their lives they're out of state um, they have families of their own they've got good jobs um, they're no longer afraid uh, I encourage them to come forward if they have any suspicions or evidence of uh, who the killer might be. Perhaps someone confessed to them. Perhaps they overheard something. Perhaps they saw something. Uh, they were afraid then to come forward. Uh, they no longer have that that fear today. So, so barring uh, a new suspect, barring a conviction, barring uh, something else breaking in the case, uh, have have you said your final word on on the on these? Uh, murders, Maureen, or is there something else in the works coming down the pipeline? Uh, you mean about this case? About this case in particular. Um, I don't know. Uh, over the last 30 years, you can't imagine how many times I have thought, oh, this is going to be a break in the case, or this is going to be, this person looks like a good suspect, or that person looks like a good suspect. Um, different cases throughout the country, and it didn't, just didn't uh, come to fruition. I don't know. Now, how about outside uh, of this I'm case? Just, I'm just hopeful that this will be the year that uh, the killer is going to be identified. And, and is there another project that you're working on separate from this uh, um, case? Yeah, I've, I've got a couple of projects that I'm researching right now. Excellent. Well, we look forward to finding out more about those. Uh, Aaron, I know that this has been a, 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 a labor for you over the last few years and uh, that you're Kind of in the home stretch now of, of putting this all together. Yeah, I know that there's people that probably, you know, they've been working on that for years and they're never going to finish it, but we have. Well, that's what happens when you release the trailer well, it, early it, on. It, 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 yeah, it, it became apparent very early on that this wasn't going to be just one film. It's five. I mean, the Bridgewater Triangle was one single 90-minute documentary that took years to produce. Mm -hmm. This is five that we've been working on for four years. We have strong rough cuts on parts one through four. We're working on part five now. So we're hoping that within this calendar year or in early 2019, we'll have uh, a, a sample to send to whoever wants to pick this up. And uh, you know, we're we're pretty excited about what we've what we've been able to accomplish for a crew of you know two or three people. And what's amazing about it is with the conversations that we've had about it, and we've talked about uh, where you want to see this going. You've never said. You know, I want this to go here because that's going to get the most attention. Or, you know, you've said this is where I want it to go because that's where the most people can 
hear the story and hear the story of these victims and of the families that they left behind. And so that's, you know, been, in, in my mind, you've had tunnel vision about that, about just telling the story right and doing justice to the victims and their families. Yeah, where, where it ends up is less of a concern, as long as it ends up somewhere, and as long as whoever picks it up lets the story be told the way that it should be told and not get their Hollywood hands on it. And, can, and <laughs> can I... Can I say that I've I've seen some of it? Can I? Yeah, I, I, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. So let me tell you, folks, uh, for when you do see this, it has been exhaustively researched. The archival footage is amazing. You are going to be in the moment of when all this news was breaking, and luckily, <laughs> thankfully, they saved so many of those tapes. Just like I'm sure Maureen's thankful that so many of the articles were saved, but. Uh, this is going to be a, a complete telling of the story and a complete way to see it visually. So read Maureen's book now. Immerse yourself in the facts of the case, and then when the documentary comes out, you can actually see it all unfold and uh, and see the investigation into the suspects and just see, of course, if you're a fan of the Bridgewater Triangle documentary, you know Aaron's eye and his approach and the way that he lets the story just tell itself, and I think you're going to see a lot of that in this as well. So. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing the reaction of that because I think, in the end, the most important part is when the first screenings are done because nobody's going to watch it all in one sitting. They're going to sit and, although they might binge watch it when it becomes released because it's that compelling, but when you know everybody that's associated with it has seen it and seen it at the end, they're going to look back and say, "Thank you for doing that the right way." Well, if it you know if it wasn't for the people that came f- before us, it wouldn't be possible. So um, you know, it's credit to all them and, and Maureen for for doing the book and for and I her guess dedication can, to the Standard Times back then. I mean, we'll give Carlton uh, Smith some credit too, I guess. Yeah, his book had its moments. Right. I mean, it, there was some compelling stuff in there, but yeah, it was uh, <laughs> a little scattered at points. I think. Well, Maureen, thank you for joining us again. The name of the book is Shallow Graves, The Hunt for the New Bedford Highway Serial Serial Killer. Uh, You can get it on Amazon. You can get it pretty much anywhere you get books here, especially locally. It's in all the bookstores. Do you have any uh, upcoming talks or book signings planned? Um, Yes, I'm going to be in... um, Where am I going to be? I I have like four calendars going on at the same time. Uh, Next week, I'm going to be at the uh, uh, Parwin Library in Everett. On the 10th, uh, that's Tuesday, and then on Wednesday I'm going to be at the Duxbury Library at uh, 7 o'clock on the 11th. I will be in uh, in August, August 14th, I'll be at the Bourne Library at 7, and then in the fall I'm going to be in the uh, Middleborough Library on October 24th. And in September, I'm going to be in South Yarmouth on the, uh, Sunday the 9th. And, and, there's and a f- there's, I'm always adding dates. So. And there's a Facebook page for the book for everybody if they want to follow along with all of your upcoming events? Yes. Uh, uh, shallow gra- uh, there's, there's multiple ones. Um, shallow Graves, A Hunt for the New Bedford Highway Killer. Uh, I also have an author's page on, on Facebook. Uh, and we also have a website, shallowgravesthebook.com. And you can follow me on Twitter. Um, my Twitter handle is, I always have to look it up because <laughs> I never at myself on Twitter, um, is uh, Maureen E. Boyle 1. All right, and, uh, and Aaron, of course, you have the, the HighwayMurders.com. Yeah, we have HighwayMurders.com. Uh, both promotional trailers for the, for the film are there. 
Um, like Maureen said, if you have new information on this case, we suggest you go to the police. Uh, we also have a hotline on our website, which you can call and give us information. But we, like I said, go to the police first. But if you want to tell us something on the case, we're happy to hear it. 508-505-INFO is the hotline for our our project, and we were also on Facebook as well. And we didn't get to run the trailers because we had so much to cover, but they That's are, right. on, there are You can see them on YouTube, you can see them on the website, and uh, and we'll we'll tack a little link at the end to, for people to be able to find them as well. So thank you both for joining us. Uh, I know it's a, a little late for you, Maureen. I know that Aaron's usually up this time anyway, editing and trying to get everything done, but thank you both for joining us and, uh, and for sharing information on this, and I'm sure that we'll be coming back around to this topic and covering it even more in depth in the future. Thanks, right, Tim. Well, th- thank you for having me on. All right. Have a great night, Maureen. Okay. And um, we'll we'll be in touch soon. And, of course, uh, as she said, you can see her at a variety of places. Uh, I'm, I'm excited now that I work, like, daytime hours. I can actually go out and, and catch some of her discussions around here. Uh, and, and I'm going to tell you, folks, that if you want to go out and see her at some of these library discussions that she's having, she packs a place every time. So if you're planning on going... Uh, show up, show up early because if you want to get a seat, they're they're going to go fast. And uh, Aaron, we will let you get back to uh, to the studio, and you can start uh, continuing the edits. And yeah, I, I won't be doing editing editing tonight. But yeah, <laughs> but uh, certainly uh, we look forward to having you back as well. And uh, just you know, of course, keep us up to date with everything uh, as it goes along, and uh, we'll uh, we'll share it with our audience. That does it for this week's show. Next week, we will not be on because uh, we have an event. But the week after that, it's going to be a very special Spooky South Coast broadcasting from Lilydale, New York. It'll be myself and Phil Paleologus out in the spiritualist capital of the world. Without we, me. I know. It's just, listen, we, somebody else is footing the bill for us. Mm-hmm. So we... Uh, we we couldn't ask for too much, and and even then I I did mention you, but you had other obligations. So. Yeah. Well, somebody screwed up the days, and then well, didn't tell me, and then I went and booked a work trip. So. I also didn't think it was happening till suddenly mm-hmm. I was told it was happening. Sorry, right. we might be breaking up over this. I was told, uh, hey, on the twentieth of uh, July, we're going to New York. Okay. All right. So uh, we will broadcast Spooky South Coast live from Lilydale. This is huge because they don't let just anybody come in. Like, there was a process to go through to get approval for. And listen, don't let me try to feign in any way like I'm super important and I had anything to do with us getting into Lilydale. It's because Phil Paleologus is going to be there. The man is a star. Mm-hmm. The man is a legend. So fired. He greased all the wheels. He made everything happen. So uh, it'll be Phil and myself hosting Spooky South Coast in two weeks from Lilydale. And then uh, after that, we'll have another event, but then we'll be back uh, pretty much throughout August with all new shows for you. And by that point, we're just about getting ready for the Halloween season. I'm going to say we can start the Halloween season the first week of August if we Why want. Why can't we? Sure. We, we can make it. We need uh, to. Aaron, I know you're for that. You're a Halloween guy. So. Yeah, no, yeah. I start thinking about Halloween. August 1st, you're allowed yes. to start thinking about Halloween. When, when do you start putting together the, uh, the display and all that stuff? October 1st. Usually I try October 1st, but uh, I start thinking about it in oh, August. You, you start seeing the decorations in the stores in August. See, I was all always yeah. of the opinion out. like i only i only wanted to put it out on halloween because i don't want anybody no. to see it ahead of time but with your setup there's no way you could do it all in one day no no there's way too much involved i mean it takes a lot of man hours to set that all up and uh, i like to enjoy it for a month if i'm going to put all that work into it i want to leave it out there for a few weeks i love and I fight love, all the weather storms i love the fact that the guy who doesn't believe in most of the paranormal stuff loves halloween. has has the most haunted 
Halloween collection out of anybody oh, that I, I know. Love, I love Halloween. I absolutely love it. So we'll we'll have maybe we'll do a live remote from uh, from your yard <laughs> yeah, during Halloween welcome. season. There you All go. right. So uh, if anybody needs to get in touch with us during the course of the week, then you can certainly uh, reach out to us via email spooky crew at spookysouthcoast.com, on Twitter at spookysc. You can hear the rebroadcast of the show each week on the Dark Matter Digital Network and coming soon to kingdomofnighradio.com as well. Uh, there's there's uh, a whole bunch of great programming coming to that site as well. We'll have more information for you on that as it comes out I want to thank bart l for all of his work this week not only in get, keeping that running but also the entire uh, lgab creation ellgab.com if you are looking for belgab you have to look now for lgab don't ask i'm not but i'm not you can go there there's a spooky south coast page you can get in the discussion with everybody there as well until next time for matt for matt for stephanie for aaron for Maureen, for Ken, for Danny, even though he didn't call in, but he did message me saying he's very much underwater trying to get this done, but he's going to get it done. Until next time, we want you all to stay spooktacular. It was the July weekend. My pager went off, called the station. Made a phone call and found out that Lakeville police wanted my assistance and I drove up to the scene. I met with a female who apparently had gone into the woods to make a rest stop and came across the skeletal remains of a female. Saturday, July 30th. The remains of a body were found in a wooded area off Route 195 in Dartmouth. The second victim that we've identified is a woman named Nancy Piva. As soon as the second body was found, right away, I said, I think we have a serial killer on our hands. No arrests have been made. The families of victims have suffered most. She was one that always wanted to do good for herself. She really was a good, caring person. I was always hoping that she was alive somewhere. All those bodies started popping up on the highway, and my Uncle Wayne thought to himself, that sounds like Debbie. Well, we're on a normal little patrol and one of the workers come and got me and, you know, it was a human skull. Six specially trained police dogs will be searching selected secondary roads and highways throughout the area. The DA says police are now looking at a number of possible suspects who are known to frequent or travel through the Weld Square area. A new complaint is issued against Neil Anderson for assault with intent to commit rape. Tony DeGrazio became a suspect because of what he was known to do with the girls on the street. Former New Bedford attorney Ken Pont appeared in New Bedford Superior Court charged with beating and killing Rochelle Clifford DePirla. I demand that your harassment of me be stopped immediately. Do I agree with the way Pina handled the case? No, I don't. There's a nightmare now of wondering who killed her. Now it's 27 years we're at. My grandmother went to her grave without ever knowing what happened to her daughter.